This is Wednesday's Women, hosted by Caitlin and Taylor. We invite you to join us in a candid conversation about the roles of women in political organizing and beyond, as we celebrate the centennial celebration of the 19th Amendment. We hope that you find this episode educational, entertaining, and the women we discuss inspiring. If you like what you hear, subscribe and share. And welcome back to another wonderful episode of Wednesday's Women with Caitlin and Taylor. Ah, uh, what a week, what a time, Corona. But you know what? We're here. We. So let's get into it. Who are we talking about today, Taylor? Today, we are talking about Abigail Adams. She is seen as one of the founding mothers of the United States of America. She wrote several letters during the Constitutional Convention. Though women were not permitted to attend the Constitutional Convention, it's thought that she had the most sway out of all the conventional Congress wives. Um, and tomorrow is Constitution Day, so what better time to celebrate our founding mother than right before Constitution Day? Absolutely. So, Abigail Adams was born November 11th, 1744 in Wymouth, Massachusetts to William and Elizabeth Quincy Smith. Quincy, what a weird name, but you know what? I'm not going to judge them on it. They named a whole town after them. Oh. Quincy, Massachusetts. Oh, rip. <laughs> I hate, I don't, nothing against anybody that's named Quincy, like all power to you, but I don't, it's not, it's not where it is. No. <laughs> So she was plagued by poor health as a child, and she acquired an extensive education through reading, which was, you know, very uncommon for a young lady at the time. Your duties were to learn how to sew and cook, but she was lucky. And she had a private tutor up until her teen years because she was so sick she couldn't be sent to school. Um, and while women typically weren't very well educated, they did typically go to school for a couple great years. Yeah. yeah. So she first met John Adams when she was 15 years old in 1759. So John had accompanied his friend Richard Cranch to the Smith household, and Cranch was engaged to Abigail's older sister, Mary Smith. That's a very common thing, too, at the time, which makes sense, is just that you meet people through your siblings. Um, that's how my grandmother actually met her husband, is that he they were being accompanied by brothers. Um, it was no tinder. Yeah. Uh, and John Adams, uh, John Adams reported finding the Smith sisters neither fond nor frank nor candid. Isn't that just what you want your betrothed to say to you? I find you neither fond nor frank nor candid. And, like, it's on record. It's not even like she died, and then he was like, yeah, I mean, I'm gonna be honest. Like, like, he just came out and said it. He was like, ah, she's not great, but I guess it is what it is. There was, um, seven years between them, so there was a pretty decent age gap, considering she was 15. So, I'm not quite sure what, like, drew him into her. Wow. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> so, the couple married the unfortunate duo for Abigail. They married on October 25th, 1764 in the Smith's home in Weymouth. And although Adam's father approved of the match, um, 
Her mother was appalled that her daughter would marry a country lawyer whose manners still reeked of the farm, but eventually she gave in. Her mother knew what was up. Her mom was like, this boy ain't it. And she did it anyway. If Disney has taught me anything in life, it's that when your parent says, no, this is not the one, it's not the one. Look it's at not Ariel. the one. Ariel almost died. And her dad's like, you're too young. And she's like, no, dad, I love him. I'm 16. It's like, bitch, you don't know anything at 16. So, like, but what did she really almost die for? A mediocre man? No. She was a whole ass mermaid. And then she was like, I want to be with this man who can't swim. Like, what? what was the name of him? Eric. I bet Eric was bald by the time he was 35. Like, all that black hair, I bet it, he was bald uh -huh. by 35. I had a hard time picturing for him for a minute. I was thinking of the dude from Sleeping Beauty, which is a whole other issue, TBH. Yeah, I also, he's blonde. What was his name? Prince Charming? I thought he had brown hair. I thought he had, like, real short brown hair. <laughs> Unclear. Either way, men ain't shit. Um, Regardless, if you see a sleeping woman, don't kiss her. Also, if your mom it's says no, you just listen about men especially. Yeah. But either one. way, the Adams became a couple. Um, later on, they moved to Boston where John practiced, his practice expanded, and the couple welcomed their first child nine months into their marriage. So they were like... I told you. Why? I, okay, here's the thing. It's nine months into their marriage, but I do believe babies take ten months to fully develop and, like, pop out. So, it was a shotgun wedding. We see you, Abigail Adams. Other reasons why her mom might have been not great with the marriage? <laughs> I bet she didn't, I bet she didn't know, though. Like, how did pregnancy tests work in the 1700s? Uh, they didn't. She couldn't have been more than, like, four weeks along when she got married. True. You want to know what, how you figured out you were pregnant? The bump. It, it came out, and you were like, oh, God. <laughs> I wasn't ready. Well, guess what? The oh, God moment happened to Abigail six times in 12 years. That means she spent, like, half of her first 12 years of marriage pregnant. Nasty. It's not, like, nasty to be pregnant, just, like, to be pregnant that long yeah think not of a fan think of it this way she was basically pregnant for three years straight how can you be i just wouldn't you not straight but you know what i mean no I, like i understand what you're saying i'm just saying like i've never looked at pregnancy and been like that looks like a good time not gonna lie i've seen like cute baby outfits and i'm like can my cat fit in this like important questions i ask myself but i've never been like ooh, wish i was pregnant the only, only time I ever am like, ah, oh, yes, pregnancy. That's what I want. Have you ever seen the women who can balance, like, ice cream on their on their bump and not use their arms to eat? <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I retract my previous statement. That That's kind of legit. <laughs> no, like, you know, like, basically, your stomach is now your trough. And you get to just stick your whole ass face into your meal. And that <laughs> is astounding. Not that way about like women with larger breasts. If you've ever seen me, you know that I do not have large breasts. Um, if you haven't, now you also know that. 
And I always felt like girls with large breasts had, like, what they lacked in pocket space, they made up for in, like, just general storage space. Well, that's what's going on on TikTok now. That's the new trend, is what can you fit under your boobs? Not under, just, like, in. Like, you could put a cup there and just, like, sip through a straw. It's true. Doesn't require pregnancy, just saying. (laughs) As we talk about childbearing and everything, it's important to note that Abigail Adams had a very interesting childbearing style. So it was termed relentless and continual reminders were given of what the children owe to virtue and to the Adams tradition. It's all based on the way that she raised the kids. So it was probably not very easy to have her as a mother. Yeah, probably not. But also, I feel like that was very much the, the time as well, you know, the societal norms of the time. But she was responsible for family and farm when her husband was on his long trips. Alas, she wrote in December 1773, how many snowbanks divide thee and me? She was very busy having to take care of everything. So she, even though her husband was a lawyer and a farmer, so I'm sure they had enough wealth, she did do a lot of everything by hand and doing it herself instead of having help do it. Um, their marriage is actually very well documented, um, through their correspondences and other writings that they had between the two of them. Um, their letters that they exchanged throughout John's political obligations indicated his trust in her knowledge and was very sincere. But I will say later on, as we talk about their relationship, I'm going to call bullshit on his sincerity because I don't know. I think he was just trying to sweeten her up, gonna be honest. I think he was sincere about some things, but only if they agreed with him. Okay, yeah, fair. Like, I think once she disagreed with him, he was like, ah, she's a woman, what does she know? Yeah. She's neither frank nor candid. Yes. Or fine. But I think when she was like, no, that's a good idea, I think you should proceed with that, he was like, ah, yes, she's brilliant. Yeah. I'm like... But despite our ideas... It is stated that they, through their correspondences at least, it seemed that they had very mutual emotional and intellectual respect for one another, which is abnormal for the time. It is, but also, I'm just going to say this. I know that, like, the 1700s were different, but Abigail Adams was 100% groomed for this relationship. Okay. Yeah. With, without a doubt. Do I have evidence to support this? No. Um, that's probably why we don't make money off of these, because it's just us talking about our beliefs of people um but I genuinely believe that when you are 15 and your partner is 22 and did not like you at first but then ends up marrying you they groomed you yeah 100% that's my belief and I have no proof so if you're like no they were just truly in love there was nothing weird going on that's fine but I'm calling you on it John Adams I am <laughs> Not John Quincy Adams, who had his own issues. So, like Caitlin said, when John Adams was away on legal business, um, Abigail was pretty much left to tend to everything other than his legal practice. So, Abigail Adams' skilled management of the family's business allowed her husband to devote his energies to his law practice and to politics. Let's not forget that. He would not have been what he was 
without Abigail Adams. So while John Adams labored in Congress to build consensus um, for independence from Great Britain and to create a new government, so this is around the time of the revolution, his wife personally, with very minimal help, educated all the kids. So two of them did die in childbirth or sh shortly after, but she still had four kids to educate. Ran the agricultural activities on their farm. Um, they did not own slaves, but I know they hired workers to come onto their farm and like do stuff, probably for very minimal pay. I'm not gonna say they were like great employees. I'm just saying they weren't slaves. She also arranged smallpox inoculations for the entire household, which was kind of a big deal back then because it wasn't as easy as just like you go and get your shot. There was like a whole process to inoculating yourself before vaccinations. So one thing that happened during the revolution is there was a non-importation act um, that basically said we're not going to import goods from Britain. And British was the largest producer of textiles so Adams spun and wove her own fabric to make clothing for the family, which was pretty typical of American women at that time. And she advocated not only for her family to do this, but other families around her to participate. And it was kind of a um, slight to the British where we're not importing from you and you're not making money off of us anymore. So that is like a big deal to make clothes for all of your household. I know Caitlin makes clothes for herself and sometimes for Dante. Yeah. So she was doing their entire, um, basically their entire fashion line from her house. But it is important to note at this time, most of the time women um, had only a certain number of clothes, especially in outerwear. So you would have your undergarments and your undershawls um, that give you layers and give you the shape you're looking for. But then you'll have um, outward like colored accessories to go over them. So your petticoat and your um, parts of the, the bustle and things. But um, another thing is she would make them and probably what would happen is say, her second oldest would wear them and then they would get passed down to the third oldest. That was another big thing. So I'm sure that when she did this, even though it was um, like different since they were just using non-important uh, British textiles. Uh, I just lost my entire train of thought. Basically what I'm saying is that there is a little bit of extra, like, usage she got out of those and what you would expect hearing that. Yeah, she wasn't just making, you know, a graphic tee to wear to a concert and then never wearing it again. Like, these were clothes that got a lot of use. Um, it just is impressive that on top of everything else she was doing, she was spinning her own fabric. Oh, absolutely. And then making clothing out of it. So yeah, definitely don't think she's like producing like Yeezys or Gucci or anything like that. But it was still just a lot of effort on everything she had. Absolutely. Um, John Adams, though I have my issues with the man, did acknowledge his wife's skill and labor. Um, he jokingly would say that he received word that their farm never looked better and was outshining all their neighbors' farms. 
sort of acknowledging that like Abigail has a lot on her plate and she's managing it all very well, better than he did sometimes. Um, on top of managing the farm, well, I guess as part of managing the farm, Abigail also took responsibility for the family's financial matters, which was very unusual for the time. Women typically had very little control over money. Um, Abigail Adams took responsibility for all the financial matters for the family, including investments. So she chose where to invest their money. Um, she made investments through her uncle, Cotton Tufts, through debt instruments issued to finance the Revolutionary War. Um, and so she did finance a decent portion of it. She wasn't like the sole pay, not payer. She wasn't the sole. Profiter? No. She wasn't the only person who contributed to the war effort financially, but she did, um, finance it quite a bit and obviously a lot of that is bonds and similar items so there is some return on that but not much and so she continued this her investment skills the whole time she was with um John Adams even after they lived together he left her in charge of financial obligations because she was so good at it and um after he retired there was no pension for former presidents the only benefit you got out of it was you never had to pay for mail again. You could just mail for free. Um, and Abigail was, like, annoyed with how her president was treated during the, with how her husband was treated during the presidency. And so she would encourage people to use his free mail service. So, like, everyone in their family and friend circle was, like, mailing for free. And she was like, ha, 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 I'll get back at the government. Um, <laughs> so government today, I'm gonna mail everybody's mail for free. <laughs> also, I just want to add, I think it's so funny that she was the one who was in charge of their finances because it's not like because women didn't even have control of their finances really, like in the late, like whenever women got suffrage, that was still an abnormal thing. That's still sometimes an abnormal thing. It's still seen as the men's responsibility. And yeah. It's so interesting that all this time back in the 1700s, that she was doing it already. She wasn't. She was doing it really well and was, like, revered for how she handled it. Um, so there was no pension for former presidents other than his free mail. So actually, without Abigail Adams, the Adams would not have lived the life they lived after the presidency because it was also off of her savings that she accumulated during John's public service career that they lived in their retirement. Um, and so one thing she did that was kind of sleight of hand is she, when she died, she left everything to only the female members of her family. So all the money went to the female members. Um, and there's a couple reasons people think she did this. It's thought that her sons were already successful um, and did not need the money. Um, it's also the idea that you figure Abigail was young when she was married. There was probably little trust given to her until she married John. And I do believe that finance was a huge motivator for women 
And so the idea was if you have the finances to live a steady life, you're not going to rush to the first man with money. I'm gonna like hope that's the, the, the latter because I don't like the idea of her just being like, oh, well, the girls get something too, you know, because the men are already well off. Yeah. So we also want to touch on the fact that she was a revolutionary. So she was thought to be one of the strongest female voices in the American Revolutionary War. So like her husband, she firmly believed in dissolving the political union with Great Britain. Um, and her firm views on American independence were simply expressed in a 1775 letter she wrote explaining, and this is a quote, let us separate. They are unworthy to be our brethren. Let us renounce them. So obviously, very clearly, she felt strongly that America should be a separate entity from Great Britain. Um, Abigail Adams first met George Washington shortly after he took command of the Continental Army. And Adams had initially had hesitation regarding Washington as a slaveholder and a member of the Virginia planter elite, which everyone is well known that's how he was as a president while he did a lot of great things for America. That doesn't change the fact that he also did wrong um, however, after meeting, Adams wrote her husband, and she was, and this is again a quote, struck with George Washington, and that his appointment was received with universal satisfaction. So, like I said, I think part of me wonders, like, if I were to meet George Washington today, if despite, other than the fact that he was a slave owner, how would I feel about him, and was he more of a slave owner because that was societally accepted? Would he, if it was that doesn't make it any better obviously but it just makes me wonder i just think um and actually this was a viewpoint abigail adams had she actually questioned if virginians really wanted their freedom because they held slaves and she said how can you advocate for your own freedom when you're holding your um slaves yeah like that's sort of not harmonious ideals. Um, I do think, um, unfortunately, slavery did have slightly less of an impact back then. Um, as we've talked in previous episodes, slaves weren't that expensive, considering they were a literal human life. Um, so many people had them. And so I do think at the time, a lot of people looked past George Washington. Um, when he died, he did not free his slaves. He left them to his wife. She freed the slaves early because it was decided that upon her death they would be freed, and she was worried that they would kill her to gain her freedom. So it's not even like she really freed them with good intention. She was just like, I don't want to die. Here you go, leave. Um, so, but I do get that George Washington was very charismatic and you know, slavery didn't hold the same weight it held back then, which isn't excusing it, but I do sort of get how she looked past that. Yeah. Um, and it was really interesting to see her viewpoints on that, because she was very articulate um, with her beliefs, and so she was very, at a time where women weren't always um, given a lot of formal instruction, she was very good at displaying how she felt about different forms of society. So including slavery, including um, issues with American liberty. Everyone said about how well she was at 
um, expressing her beliefs. And I think partially that has to come from the fact, like we said, she was sick as a child, so she got a lot of one-on-one uh, -on -one instruction, which I'm sure helped. Um, and one thing that's really great about the fact that she had this amazing way of expressing herself was the fact that she was able to argue for women's rights um, and she did so through some of the letters that she wrote in 1776. So in 1784, shortly after the Constitutional Convention, um, her husband was stationed in Paris as a diplomat and Abigail, her daughter, her eldest daughter, Nabby, and her eldest son, John Quincy, joined um, John Adams at his post in Paris. I'm not sure what they did with the two youngest. I, unclear. <laughs> what? They just watched each other. Maybe. Just, like, each other and were like, you, you watch me, I watch you, good, okay. <laughs> Maybe. Um, that, like that John Mulaney skit where he's like, hire a horse to watch your dog. <laughs> She was 14. I was 12. That's two years. That's like getting a slightly older child who can dial the phone a little bit better than me. If you're wondering if Caitlin and I often quote John Mulaney, the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, the answer is hell yes. Abigail dreaded the thought of the long sea voyage. Um, I would too, I get extremely motion sick, and I'm not gonna lie, when I studied abroad, I was afraid I'd get sick on the plane. So I completely get the concern, but she actually found the journey very interesting and was not opposed to sea travel in the future. So she found life in Paris to be kind of difficult at first and was overwhelmed by the experience of running a large house with a lot of servants. Um, she didn't have a lot of servants when she ran their farm. Like I said, they had agricultural workers who came and worked at the farm, but she was mostly running the household. And so when you have servants, you're typically expected to delegate things to them. And she was really uncomfortable with that. Um, as the months passed, though, she began to enjoy herself. She made a lot of friends, um, really liked the theater and opera in Paris. And so she attended several she was also incredibly fascinated by Parisian women's fashion, um, though she did say once that she would never be in the mode, which just meant she would never wear their fashion. In, after 1785, she filled the role of wife of the first U.S. minister to the court of St. James in Britain, and so she was very unhappy with Britain. She, with London, she much preferred Paris, um, she didn't make a lot of friends in London, and she was generally cold-shouldered. A couple reasons this could have been. She had a pretty strong personality. Um, she was really open about her views and would pretty much tell everyone, and that wasn't really the British style. It still really isn't. They're not, like, known for being this really open society. So I'm not shocked that she was sort of cold-shouldered. I am sad for her, though, because she did love Paris so much. Um, one pleasant experience was that she had temporary guardianship of Thomas Jefferson's young daughter, Mary, who went by Polly. Um, and Abigail had a motherly love for her that she felt for the rest of her life. Um, so that is, like, one good thing that came out of it. 
she and John and the family eventually returned to their home in Quincy in 1788. Um, it's known as the Old House. They did have several houses through their lifespan, and so they gave each of them, like, weird nicknames. And she immediately set about enlarging and remodeling the house um, to reflect how, it, how her homes in Europe looked. It still stands and is open to the public as part of the Adams National Historical Park. There you can see the Adams Old Family Home. You can see, I believe, Abigail's home, and I believe John Quincy's first home. I'm sorry, but I still don't like the name Quincy. Not a fan of the name Quincy, and don't name your kids Quincy. It's weird. Like, unless you were born in the 1700s, do not name your kids Quincy. Well, with that in mind, we'll talk a little bit about um, Abigail as a mother, but not in that kind of sense, as a founding mother. So, like we already said, Abigail Adams was very, very well at um, expressing her viewpoints. And so she did very well when she wrote about the troubles and concerns she had in the 18th century um, regarding women's rights and the concerns women typically had in that time. Um, specifically, she would try and advocate for married women's property rights and more opportunities for women, particularly in the field of education. So she believed women should not submit to laws not made in their interest. Completely agree. Um, and nor should they be content with the simple role of being companions to their husbands. She wanted women to get educated so that they could educate their husbands and their households, which kind of goes along to that idea that we saw in the uh, early second wave of feminism where women are the moral compasses for their households. They felt that it was important for women to not be as educated as the husbands because they didn't want women to be in charge, but they wanted the women to be rightly educated so that way they basically could be in charge and steer their husbands the way that they felt they should be steered. Yeah, and so it's this idea of controlling your husband, which was especially, not controlling, but sort of controlling, which was especially important in the 1700s because women did not have the right to vote and did not have many prospects of getting the right to vote. So if you could convince your husband to vote in your interest, at least your voice was being heard if it was through someone else's mouth. Yep. Um, she wrote a letter actually to John in the Continental Congress requesting that they remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by the laws in which we have no voice or representation. And this is another prime example of why I think Abigail could have done better. John whole ass ignored her and declined Abigail's quote unquote extraordinary code of laws on the couch for the rest of his life. He'd never even set foot in the bedroom. I'd be like, get out. Take your clothes out to the coat closet. Don't come in here. Well, like, seriously, like, you gotta tell me. They obviously, like, if it's any, if there's any truth in them having a loving and or respectful relationship, the fact that he just dismissed her like a child, stupid, and I hate it. 
I also think it's important to point out that she says, remember all men would be tyrants if they could, which means that this discussion happened at least one other time. And she was like, yeah, men are pretty trash at politics. Like you should let women participate. And John was like, I'll think about it. Like, sir, sir, I have some issues. (laughs) Yeah. But not only did Abigail work to advocate for the needs of women, she also opposed slavery and spoke to her husband who served in the Constitutional Convention about abolition often. She critiqued the idea that Virginians wanted freedom because they enslaved fellow men and women, as Taylor already said. Um, And she felt slavery was not only evil, but harmful to the United States, which I would agree to because it gives us that sense of like hypocrisy basically to outward like spectators. And this really means that Abigail was one of the first people to speak out against slavery. Um, Sure, there were people before the 1700s speaking out against slavery, but not on such a large platform as legitimately reaching out to the Constitutional Convention and being like, hey, when we make this Constitution that's like, here are your rights, maybe we should give rights to women and to men and women of color and to the Native Americans and to everyone in this country. And they're like, yeah, but that's a lot of words when we could just write men. I wonder, so, I wonder if John, like, I don't know if there is enough research to spectate one way or the other, but it makes me wonder if John felt similarly to Abigail, but because of the fact that it wasn't the socially accepted idea that he was afraid of losing his place in the Constitutional Congress by insinuating something so I want to say like not normal at the time such an off-the-wall idea as everybody being equal spoiler alert for the next segment John Adams had zero moral backbone like his moral backbone was an overcooked spaghetti noodle I kid you not So I genuinely believe that, like, John shared these interests with Abigail and was like, my wife is a great example of why women should have rights. And then he got to the Constitutional Convention and they're all like, our wives could not handle this. And he was like, oh, okay, we can take that part out, I guess. Like, no moral backbone. An overcooked spaghetti noodle. I'm telling you, I have research to back that up. (laughs) In the, uh, what's it called, the thesaurus, and you just see a, not, not thesaurus, uh, I think it's, oh, well, yeah, wouldn't it be the thesaurus, because that's, like, synonyms? I mean, yeah, and you just see an overcooked spaghetti noodle. Yeah, there's not even, like, other synonyms, it's just the spaghetti noodle. Really stuck to a wall. (laughs) Yeah, so you know it's real done. (laughs) Um, So, even though this man had the moral backbone of an overdone spaghetti noodle, he was elected president March 4th, 1797. Um, This is after serving vice president to George Washington. Um, Abigail actually did not attend his inauguration. She had, like, a valid reason she was tending to his very ill mother. Um, I just think it's funny that, like, (laughs) Abigail could not be found. (laughs) Um... She took her duties as First Lady very seriously. Um, She had seen how Martha ran her White House, though they weren't in the White House at the time. I'm just calling it that. 
And so she tried to model hers similar to Martha's, but not exactly the same. So dinner parties were very important to her. Entertaining guests was a big part. But she also took on an active role in politics and policy, which was really a first for women. Um, Martha Washington had a very quiet presence in the White House and was known mostly as an entertainer, not so much to be in politics. She was so politically active that it's thought that she may have outshined her husband and her political opponents actually used to refer to her as Mrs. President, um, sort of as a slight that she didn't have the right to be where she was. But it also speaks to her power that like she was Mrs. President and John had no moral backbone. <laughs> Just gonna repeat that the whole episode. <laughs> Um, Abigail served as John's confidant both politically and just generally in life, and as his confidant, she was often well-informed on issues facing her husband's administration, um, and she often knew details of current events that the public did not know and would expose these details to her sister Mary and her son John Quincy in letters. Um, big no-no, if y'all remember 2016. Still a big no-no. <laughs> Don't be sharing private information with non-certified people. Just general rule of thumb. Um, but honestly, if my husband treated me the way John treated Abigail, I'd be spilling secrets too. <laughs> I'd be like, this man's an idiot. <laughs> Who elected him? She became such a well-informed confidant that people would actually contact her instead of John Adams. So press would reach out to her for quotes. Um, people would try to set meetings up with the president through her. And I'm sure this was annoying, but she used it very much so to her and her husband's advantage and would use these opportunities to plant favorable stories about her husband in the press. Um, so props to her on that one. She remained a staunch supporter of her husband's political career, supporting most of his policies, including the passing of the Alien and Sedition Acts, um, which was really the major thing he did in his presidency. In 1800, the Capitol was relocated to Washington, D.C., and she became the first lady to reside at the White House. Back then, it was referred to as the President's House, and D.C. did not look like it looks today. So it was surrounded by forests, and they wanted people to come in and remove some of the trees. And because D.C. was a fairly political town, most people were involved in politics. They weren't really farming in D.C. Abigail Adams really struggled to find people to take care of this, and she laments about it in several of her letters where she's just like, ah, these trees, someone needs to get them. <laughs> So it is just a fun little fact about the White House. Um, so they moved into the White House in November of 1800 and lived there for four months until um, January. No, it would have been after. It would have been March when they switched. Um, Adams lost his reelection campaign in, eight, in March 1800. And wait, no. Those dates don't add up. Okay, we'll just, oh my god, we'll just restart that. <laughs> so Adam, Adams moved into the White House in 1800 and lived there for the last four months of her husband's term. 
Um, Adams did lose his re-election campaign. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> Same. Um, <laughs> following his defeat, they moved back to Massachusetts where they retired um, and lived off of Abigail's incredible savings. Because she took care of it. She did. John Adams did not. John Adams took care of very little. Men ain't shit. <laughs> if you haven't, if you could not tell, this episode is very uh, nonchalant, and it's because we're tired. We're tired, and it is a very stressful week for us, just with school. Um, Caitlin has started clinicals. I've started an internship. Um, so future episodes will not be this nonchalant. We'll start taking them seriously again, but this was just kind of a fun time to discuss an upcoming holiday, and since we're super busy <laughs> and filming a little late, we decided to have a good time right. with it. Please enjoy our discussion question. So, if Abigail Adams had lived in the 21st century, do you think her life plan would have been different? Yes, I think so, because once she was with the skills she had and she was exhibiting then, she would not have been tied down to a limp noodle like Adams. I think even if she was tied to a limp noodle like Adams, um, she would have risen to political fame. So we've talked about other partnerships, um, primarily Eleanor Roosevelt, where Eleanor was actually more politically known than FDR. So I think that would have been the case for Abigail if she had lived in the 21st century. Um, we're not great about recognizing women in politics, but we're getting better. And so I think she would have had a better shot to actually be respected in the field rather than mockingly called Mrs. President. Yeah, I think so too. And I think it's also like just the fact that her ideas were so progressive at that time. Like it would have been really interesting to see what else. I wish there would have been more written about her to hear more of what she, how she felt about different topics. Yeah, she definitely would have been a Black Lives Matter supporter. I think she would have argued for defunding the police and reallocating those funds. Um, probably would have also been a supporter of no cop money for PA. No what? You haven't heard of no cop money? Nope. So what people can do is they can go on and take this pledge and they agree to not take funds from the Fraternal Order of Police, which is the police union. Um, and so politicians can sign the pledge to not take funding from police unions so that you know that if there was ever a discrepancy in an arrest or if something ever happened, there would be unbiased investigation into what happened, as opposed to when your district attorney receives a large donation from the Fraternal Order of Police and is then hesitant to investigate when it's thought cops were involved in a wrongdoing. Yeah, I've never heard of that before. Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool. She would have supported it. The most important question. I'm ready. If you were Abigail Adams, mm -hmm. would you have divorced your husband? Hell yes. Without a doubt, like, there were so many opportunities that Abigail could have been like, this man is not for me. Yeah. Like so many opportunities. For one, I fully believe Abigail Adams was groomed. And people say things were different back then. It was okay to date 12-year-olds when you were 30. 
it was never okay. People just didn't call you on it because they were dying quickly. It's still grooming. It, it's grooming now. It was grooming then. Pedophiles aren't just 60-year-old men who sleep with little boys. It's your 25-year-old friend who's dating a 16-year-old. It's weird. You're in different points in your life. I just don't understand. And also, let's just say, not that it makes it good, because it's still wrong, but let's just say he was older. He didn't even like her. He said that they, none of the sisters were um, pretty. He didn't say they were smart. And he didn't say they were interesting. So, like, you're going to tell me, oh, well, it was different times back then. Well, guess what? You see, he didn't even like her. I, he did not like her. I'm not sure what made him like her. I mean, I like Abigail Adams, but it's not like her personality changed a whole lot. What about her parents? What did her parents do? Her parents were wealthy. That's why. It's like the, it's like Alexander Hamilton all over again. Why did he go after Skylar sisters? Because they're money. I don't think they were, like, top upper class, but they were definitely, like, not doing poorly. Here's the thing. They could afford a private tutor, which was very much so a luxury during that time period. So, I mean, that gives you an idea of, like, they had some expendable cash. Yeah, absolutely. Then I write him a letter and he ignores me. You're on the couch, my friend, for the rest of your life. You're going to die on that couch. Like, I just want you to know people have a death bed you're gonna have a death couch people are gonna be like that's cruel you should have listened i thought we were a partnership you left me to take care of the house and the kids and the money and everything else i thought we were a partnership if we're not a partnership you're not sleeping in the bed i made this bed you have to sleep somewhere else gosh stone cold <laughs> i don't blame it is what it is. <laughs> and then finally, do you think Constitution Day is important? No, never. Get rid of it. So here's the thing. I'm joking for also just... Caitlin is joking, and part of this is like, as a state school, Clarion has to participate in Constitution Day because we receive federal funding. So um, while Clarion has given us some of the resources to produce this podcast, the views and opinions and storylines that we share are our own and are not endorsed by Clarion University. Um, so thank you, Clarion University, for giving us freedom to express ourselves until you hear this episode. <laughs> I truly don't think Constitution Day is that important. I don't think anybody listens or cares to it. Your life is governed by the Constitution. I know you're like, no, the cops are who pull me over, and you are correct. But what you can do is completely controlled by whether it is constitutional or not to stop you from doing that thing. The Constitution doesn't say you can do this. It says the government cannot stop you from doing this. And so if you need a day to tell you that that is important, I am concerned, truly, deeply concerned. Um, it is Citizenship Day and Constitution Day, so if we were in grade school, you would come in, sit down with your freshly sharpened pencils, and I would hand you a citizenship test and say, can you pass it? And we did. And, 
most American citizens actually can't pass a citizenship test. So I failed it. I failed hard. The first time I took it, I failed. Um, obviously, as I took more political science classes and sort of knew how to prepare for a citizenship test, um, I did a little better. But it is an incredible privilege to be born in the United States. That doesn't mean we don't have critiques of it. I can say I'm privileged to be here and still say I noticed some flaws. Um, but I don't think, if you don't care about Constitution and what the Constitution provides you, a single day is not going to change that. I can send out all the emails I want and say, this is important, take this citizenship test, do you know the Bill of Rights, all these questions, and people don't care. And it's your life, the Constitution tells me I can't yell at you for not caring, but I don't think it's that important. Because I, I don't think it has the impact other people think it has. Is it a fun day to celebrate in elementary school? Yeah. Is it fun to dress up like the Constitutional Convention and write your own constitution? Sure. But in the real world, I don't think Constitution Day has that much weight. That being said, FAFSA, if you're listening, Clarion University will be participating in Constitution Day this year. So tomorrow... September 17th, you can check your Clarion University email for a all-serve email identifying the importance of Constitution Day and the importance of citizenship and how the citizenship test works, as well as check out other social medias from groups across campus for fun Constitution Day facts. Yes, absolutely. Not in this holiday, but I will proceed as I'm supposed to. <laughs> And with all that being said, make sure you go and you check your emails tomorrow, as Taylor said. Um, who are we talking about next week? So next week, September is very busy for us. Um, next week is National Voter Registration Day, September 22nd. Um, it's also my golden birthday, so I turned 22 on the 22nd. Um, always fun. And... We will be covering the League of Women's Voters to discuss how, um, if you recall, they started as a suffrage organization and then worked to educate women on the power they can have at the ballot box. And they are still working today to get students registered. Um, typically in the past, Clarion University would actually invite our local chapter of the League to come to our campus and table with us, um, clearly, since there is a pandemic, it is flu season, and the weather's not supposed to be super great next week, we're not tabling. But it is still important to recognize the help that we have received in the past, and so I'm very excited to honor the League of Women's Voters in next week's episode. Yeah, so if you guys like this episode, make sure you come back for next week. Make sure you like, share, and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us to and make sure you get out there and register to vote because Abigail Adams couldn't and you should for her. This has been Wednesday's Women sponsored by the Clarion University CU Engaged Coalition. The thoughts and ideas presented in this podcast are meant to be for entertainment purposes first and foremost and we do not claim to be experts in any field. As always, thank you for listening and make sure that you go out and register to vote.